Good morning, uh, friends and colleagues. Uh, welcome to our Friday morning session. Ask the experts. Uh, we have two uh, outstanding people joining us today, Dr. Shriver and Dr. Jennifer Cates, uh, who's Senior Vice President and Director of the Global Health and HIV Policy at the Kaiser Family Foundation. And uh, she's a professor and lecturer at the School of Advanced International Studies at the Johns Hopkins University. And she will tell us about uh, vaccination for children, COVID-19 status and challenges. And of course, John will give us the update on, on everything about COVID. But, you know, but before we start, and, uh, and uh, you know, today I'm uh, decided to wear a, uh, a tie and a suit that actually recognizes the people of Ukraine. And uh, obviously, uh, we're all thinking about them, about the children that are suffering specifically. And, uh, you know, part of what we want to know is how can we help? And, and of course, you know, um, it, it, I, I used a quote from President Obama that says, people of conscience around the world need to loudly and clearly condemn Russia's actions and offer support for the U Ukrainian people. And then, of course, at that point, you say, what do I what do? I do? Uh, and there, and we can share this through the through the web chat. But there, there are a number of organizations that are very specifically needing uh, support from all of us. Um, and and uh, you know, for instance, the you know the Polish Migration Forum. It's a, it's an organization offering free cri uh, free crisis hotline to assist people who are being affected by the Ukrainian crisis. And there are a number of others that are that are really you know helping very specifically uh, in in ways that are logical and that perhaps that's a way that we we can support and help I mean there it, it you know there's a sense of uncertainty and difficulty that obviously can affect the rest of the world but I think we we have a way of of helping in a, in a logical way and hopefully directing our support as pediatricians care providers and people who care about children around the world and maybe there are organizations that actually be very specific for for the children that are suffering uh, throughout the world, not just uh, Ukraine, uh, throughout uh, you know, all the countries that are suffering through violence and uncertainty, but certainly I think now we want to uh, offer our support for, for the Ukrainian people, especially the children. And I just wanted to, to mention that today because I know it's in everyone's heart. Um, now we're going to switch to uh, back to, to COVID-19, and um, I'm going to ask uh, Dr. Shriver to give us his update. He's logging in from home. And uh, John, I'm going to pass it on to you, and then we'll move on to Dr. Cates. John? Uh, thank you, Juan. And uh, actually, Juan and I did not speak this morning. And uh, the Ukrainian flag I have up here was really from the same heartfelt thoughts that Juan has. Um, hopefully, uh, we, you know, we're lurching from one crisis to another, but um, this one was not a one that uh, we needed to have, unfortunately. So 40 million people suffering right now. In any case, um, we'll have a little more upbeat talk about COVID uh, today. If you go to the first slide, please. Uh, this is the United States as of yesterday, and uh, Omicron is rapidly declining across the country. This is a number of new cases, dark color being worse. And uh, the only residua in New England are a couple of counties in Maine, and, and some South County of Vermont seems to have a number of cases. But uh, we're really in a much, much better place than we were um, literally only a few weeks ago. So this is very good news. Next. And if you look at new cases um, on the left, uh, it's just dropped like a rock. We're sort of getting close to where we were back over the summer of 21, where we were, we were doing well. But more importantly, I think as we move ahead with this pandemic, we're gonna to need to start looking at hospitalizations and deaths more than number of new cases. And the hospitalizations have dropped tremendously, which I think is a great indication that the incidence is down and also the effective immunizations because that greatly reduces hospitalization. So you can see 
with a lot of people in the hospital still, but it's down enormously and very quickly over the last few weeks. Next. And deaths um, are, you know, dropping. You know, they lag. They tend to lag about six weeks from hospitalizations because very sick people stay there for a while and then don't recover. But they're going down. And, and I'm optimistic um, that we'll continue to decline given the decrease in hospitalizations that we've seen across the country. This is going to continue to go down. Next. Now, this is a very interesting uh, slide from the CDC. And you know, as chaotic as the United States has been, I'm not sure that we did such a bad job because we had a lot of people immunized, not as many as we would have liked, and very regional and geographic based on politics. But nevertheless, a lot of people got immunized. We have a heck of a lot of people who got Omicron. So between the two, this is a seroprevalence estimate of almost 43 to 43% of the country is seropositive to COVID-19. It's probably greater than that. And the estimated uh, number of infections, about 140 million people got infected. And a lot of people were immunized as well. So, you know, as a country, we've sort of moved more into the herd immunity state where there are a lot of people who have at least some immunity to this virus. And, and again, uh, this is looking at nucleocapsid, not spike protein. So you're keeping out the vaccinated people. This is only the number of people got infected. But add on the vaccinated people, it's quite a number of people have immunity to COVID now. Next. Now, this is Connecticut two weeks ago. You know, we were, it was kind of depressing. And we had a, like a 9 to 10% positivity rate for, new for tests. And, but if you go to the next slide, this is us yesterday. Uh, next slide, please. And, uh, and we're in a much better place. The test positivity is down to about 2%. And from a literally a few thousand people hospitalized, we only have 191 people hospitalized in Connecticut uh, as of yesterday, probably a little bit less now. So um, this is quite good news now. But looking at this map, you know, we're all celebrating COVID's done, but it's not done. And there's a lot of community spread still. So people who are high risk need to be vigilant. And I'm going to talk about that as we move to a more endemic model for this people who are at high risk, even if boosted of getting serious disease, looking at this map need to be vigilant and are gonna to need to wear masks indoors if you're high risk, because there's a lot of community spread still. It's not translating to hospitalizations and deaths because we're so immunized in Connecticut, it's 70, 80% immunizations now. So, but this, this is an area for us to continue to be vigilant. I, I don't think we take out the champagne and pop the cork just yet, next. Now, this is Connecticut looking at number of cases um, and just pulled off the DPH site yesterday. And you can see we have an enormous reduction in a number of new cases. And next, and it's close to where we were in July of 21, where we were in very good shape. Now, you, you can go to the next, I'm sorry. And uh, deaths are down to really literally a few a day, which is a much better place to be. And it looks like we're heading into a very nice spring and summer if you look at this. And I'm going to talk about uh, the seasonality and endemicity of this virus next. Now, if you look at Massachusetts data, the behemoth to the north is similarly improving. Um, they have a huge decrease in number of cases, which is the first blue graph. Hospitalizations are way down. They still have 600 people in the hospital there, but they're twice as big as we are. So it's about right. And if you look at deaths, they're about 26 a day now, tremendous decrease in Massachusetts. But I want you to look at these curves. If you look at deaths, 
they peak at March, March, and March over three years, uh, two years. So this is already a seasonal virus. This is already a seasonal winter respiratory virus. If you look at hospitalizations, although the first peak when nobody was immune was different, look, it's, hospitalizations are peaking on December 1st, 20, December 1st, 21, around December. So this is already morphing into a seasonal respiratory virus. And so if we can keep it there, and make sure we stay immunized. We're probably, I'll talk about boosting in a minute. I think we're gonna be moving to a seasonal respiratory virus, although more severe than influenza. Next. Now, uh, this is from the DPH website, but CDC, the CDC has changed the recommendations for vaccination of more than 12 years old to go from three to eight weeks between the first and second dose. It's a little confusing. It's true with Moderna as well. And the goal here was to reduce the small incidence of myocarditis, pericarditis. And there was some data to suggest a longer duration between the first and second dose might do that. But this has generated some confusion. And I wish they had just made it standard that we do, it's eight weeks, but they haven't. So we're gonna get calls and questions about this variation. 12 and above, it's going to be eight weeks between the two doses recommended and three to eight whenever you can get them in, but they're saying eight weeks. And then five to 11 is staying at three weeks. So it's a little confusing and it is what it is. Next. Now, I, I want to reiterate, um, this is now Omicron data. This graph has been around for a while now, but these are data in the Omicron era, in February, showing that unvaccinated were 10 times as high to die, likely to die than fully vaccinated and boosted, boosted is the best. So these are facts. And I think it's very important for us to continue to stick to these facts that if you stay unvaccinated, this virus, you're gonna have a 10 times as high likelihood of dying from, from the next variant as you are if you're fully vaccinated or boosted. It's, that's pretty remarkable protection. Next. And then ditto with hospitalizations. And to me, this is going to be our bellwether moving forward. I'm not sure we're going to be following thousands and thousands of cases as much as we used to. But I think hospitalizations are going to be the canary because they lead to deaths. And you can see that if you're unvaccinated, you're seven times as high to be um, hospitalized. Now, they don't have boosting in this particular graph. Fully vaccinated is much less. So, so in, you know, we need to reiterate uh, as this fades a little bit in people's urgency about getting vaccinated, there's tremendous efficacy in keeping you out of the hospital and keeping you from dying, which is to me a very good vaccine. Next. Now let's talk about maternal vaccination. We're getting more and more data of the efficacy and effectiveness of vaccinating pregnant women. In this particular study, which came out a couple of weeks ago, Maternal immunization with the mRNA vaccines protected the infants aged less than six months next from getting uh, severe COVID. And if you go to the next slide, the summary, um, basically if you, the if mother got the two dose primary COVID-19 vaccine during pregnancy, it's a 61% um, uh, uh, pre prevention against hospitalization among those infants if they got COVID less than six months of age. So it's not bad. So those antibodies are going to go to your baby and your baby will be protected from severe COVID. So another reason as we talk to families and pregnant women to suggest this vaccine not only will protect them from severe illness, but protect their young baby under six months of age. Next.
Now, this is really interesting uh, data. And I think one, uh, as we move forward and we learn more about this virus, which is really only a couple of years old still, um, it's not a good virus. This uh, Nature Medicine paper, which came out uh, recently, looked at long-term cardiovascular outcomes of COVID-19. Next. And these are, what they found was that natural infection with COVID, if the right bar are excess disease, um, uh, and the dotted line would be expectations. And the, the purple beyond that are excess disease. Having COVID greatly increases your risk post-COVID of a variety of cardiovascular diseases, dysrhythmia, heart inflammation, which is pericarditis. This is natural disease, not vaccination. Ischemic heart disease, particularly if you already had it, and other cardiac disorders. And then of course, the thrombotic disorders we've already know about and talk about. So if you get COVID, it's gonna increase your um, likelihood of getting cardiovascular disease compared to a control cohort who did not have COVID. This is remarkable and makes you worry that we may have long-term effects in our population from having so many people infected with COVID. We will have to watch and see. Next. Now, um, the other really interesting data, you may remember a few months ago, there was somebody out there saying that the spike protein is toxic. There was a lot of controversy about it. And that individual, that scientist was probably correct. Um, this is a paper that came out actually a couple of months ago that looked at spike protein, and then they took tissue from cardiac operations in people, excess tissue, uh, when there was a heart operation, they cultured out those uh, cardiac parasites, so they're human in culture, and then looked at the effect of spike protein on those cardi cardiac cells that were from humans. Next. And, and they found that uh, this didn't, unfortunately didn't show very well, but the bottom line is, if you threw spike protein in with those cells, it was toxic to the human parasites, uh, cardiac parasites. And uh, if you look at spike at 24 hours, there are less cells on the, that green thing. Their cells have been, uh, some of them have been eliminated. And what they found was that the spike protein disrupted uh, the function of these cardiac parasites through a CD147 receptor signaling. They just had to bind to the ACE2 receptor and that cascade would start in cardiac cells. So this is probably some of the origin of how this virus, when you're infected with a heavy burden, is damaging heart directly. The question is, is the small, very transient amount of spike protein from immunization capable of doing this? And there are no data to su suggest that. But if this is food for thought, and I wanted to share it with you as we learn more about this virus and the spike protein, and our human cell responses to it as we move forward. Next. Now, another very sobering study um, uh, was from also from CDC, looking at newly diagnosed diabetes a month after natural infection in kids. And what they found is that if you had natural infection with SARS-CoV-2, it increased your likelihood of getting diabetes. Next. So again, as, as people say, kids don't get sick, why should I immunize my child? Look at these data. Uh, these are teenagers who had natural infection and excess diseases on the right. The dotted line is what your expectations would be from normal cohorts historically. And you can see that new diabetes diagnosed was um, 
in excess of what you'd expect in uh, particularly the less than 12 uh, age group uh, for diabetes. So it looks like having natural infection increases the likelihood of onset of diabetes in um, children. So, and these are particularly 12 to 17. It, it doesn't look like less than 12 uh, really had that uh, seen. So something, again, as we talk to parents and urge them to immunize their children, these data are very important. These facts are very important. Next. Now, another uh, very interesting, my, I promise you it's my last slide ever, as many of these talks I ever give again on masking, but you know, as I watched an unnamed governor essentially yell at kids to take their masks off, which I, I just, you know, I have no further comment on that. Masks work. So here's a, yet another paper showing a 50% reduction in transmission if mask use by both parties reduced spread of uh, SARS-CoV-2 by half. Um, next, next slide. And this is from Iowa data. Uh, and, and, and so um, masks work. I'm not gonna show any more slides again about that, um, but those are facts and, and I'm sorry that it's been so politicized. Now, um, looking at effectiveness of the Pfizer vaccine in 5 to 11 and 12 to 17 with Omicron, there was a lot of media attention on this. I know Juan was called by the networks. I was called and did an interview. And this is a not peer-reviewed study that was posted that shows essentially that the vaccine effectiveness wanes with time and it wasn't as good in Omicron for kids. Well, Honestly, it's not a surprise because we already knew this for adults, that we knew that over months with just the two-dose regimen, particularly for Omicron, the vaccine lost efficacy. So what this tells me when you look at this article, which is not peer-reviewed yet, there was so much media attention, oh, the vaccines don't work in kids. That's not correct. They had reduced hospitalizations by 50%, even with waning immunity. But it tells us we're gonna need booster shots for kids, that this is a three-shot regimen, just like it is in adults, and uh, and we're going to need to address the waning immunity that happens with only two doses um, in children, and we're going to need to um, get both the CDC and Pfizer and the other companies, hopefully, to generate those data in the near future to give us the guidance to do that. But again, I'm not I'm not very excited about this, uh, but there was tremendous media attention. And the, and the message to parents should be vaccine works and we're probably gonna need to give a booster dose. Now, the question of whether, um, when you went from, go next slide, please. Uh, the dosing is an interesting question. So if you look at um, the vaccine effectiveness, uh, particularly in um, younger kids, it fades quite rapidly over time with just two doses. And with the older kids, with the dose was higher if you're above age tw uh, 12 and above, it was more efficacious. So the question also comes up, is the dose too low? Did they lower the dose too much in the um, under, under age 12 group? And so again, we're gonna need the five to 11 group. We're gonna need those data to determine whether the dosing also has reduced the effectiveness. Because these data are pretty clear here, the higher dosing age groups uh, have more persistence of immunity. Next. Now, Novavax, um, we've been talking about that for two years. Um, and uh, you'll see, I, I, I took it from Twitter, which is now a scientific um, social media, if you didn't know that. Um, Novavax is already approved in Austria, Germany, France, I think in the Czech Republic as well. So it's already being given there. 
And these data from the New England Journal in February showed that Novavax has very good efficacy in adults in the United States and Mexico, and there's an English study as well. Now, this is really useful for us as healthcare practitioners because this is a recombinant protein vaccine. It doesn't have all that mRNA sort of hoopla that uh, has been politicized. And furthermore, they were very careful not to use any human embryonic kidney cells to test the vaccine, which was one of the cause celebs with the mRNA vaccine. So there's no human cells used at all to test this vaccine. I think this will be very useful vaccine uh, for us, particularly in some of our vaccine skeptic patients. Next. And the vaccine uh, was highly protective. Uh, you can see placebo on the top where there was really no protection and the vaccine NVX um, was highly protective, 90% against severe disease. Now I have some caveats on this. I, I won't go through all the others, but they, they essentially show that um, it's quite protective. The protein sequence of this um, vaccine, it's recombinant produced in insect cells, is based on this trimer of spike protein from the original Wuhan strain. So there's no question, and there's no Omicron data here. So there's no question you're probably going to have Omicron reduction of immunity, but I bet you it'll be similar to what we see with the mRNA vaccines. And the other interesting thing they found was that particularly in elderly and Hispanic ethnicity, the vaccine had lower efficacy. And they weren't sure if this was a sample size issue or a true um, uh, reflection of the immunogenicity of this vaccine. So as we learn more about Novavax, we're gonna to need to focus in on that and, and understand that better and see whether it's correct. Next. Side effects of Novavax, similar to all the other vaccines. And again, I think this will be a traditional protein vaccine that may be acceptable to many of our patients and much of the population who've been mRNA vaccine hesitant. Next. Now, um, you'd think that the media would um, focus on other things. And I have to tell you, I looked at my usual survey of all the fringe media. Nothing was about COVID this week. I, I was stunned and I, I was smiling and, um, I, you know, we're moving ahead here, except for um, Infowars, where, in fact, I bet you didn't know this, but the Ukraine war is actually a conspiracy by Big Pharma to obscure the fact that COVID-19 was made in the laboratory. Okay, I know you didn't know that, but that, that's true. And so, you know, there's some craziness out there still about COVID, but in general, it's tremendously calmed down now that many of the mandates have been lifted. And this is a refreshing opportunity for us to get immunizations out there. You know, let's get away from the political issues and let's focus on getting as many people immunized as we can so that when the seasonal virus begins to come up again, we're in a better place. Next. So we're no longer the good, the bad, the ugly. Okay, I'm gonna call it the good and the bad and I've wiped out ugly today. It's the first time in two years I've been able to do that. There is no ugly COVID news today. Connecticut's community spread has declined below 3% test positivity, much better place. We're moving to a herd immunity model in New England. The COVID deaths, are concentrated in over 70 and high risk and unimmunized. High risk individuals will need to continue to protect themselves. You know, don't go into the supermarket if you're 85, even if you're boosted with no mask. If you saw the community spread, you're putting yourself at risk. 
And um, we're going to, it's going to be critical, as I mentioned, as masking wanes to continue our immunization efforts. Boosters, the question of when and which booster is going to need to be addressed. I wish the CDC were more proactive on this. Are we going to use the Omicron booster that Pfizer already has? I'm, I'm six months out from my boost and I go on the clinical service in two weeks. You know, what are we going to do for healthcare providers who are, are six, seven, eight months out from their booster? So we need answers to this. And unfortunately, you know, we're, we're, we're not there yet. Similar to adults, pediatric immunity wanes after several months, the two dose regimen, those data are clear now and we're gonna need booster doses in that group. And unfortunately we have no guidance on that yet. And we're entering a phase where most of our population is either vaccinated or was infected. And I think this means that we will hopefully move to an endemic seasonal respiratory virus model, but that is gonna require vigilance as we move forward. Um, I'm very excited about our next talk. I'm gonna stop so we have time for questions. Again, thank you very much for being here today. Right. Yeah, thank you, John. And I'm gonna pass it on to Dr. Cates. Uh, Dr. Cates, thank, thank you for being with us and you have the podium. Great, thank you so much. It's great to be with you this morning. Um, thank you so much to Connecticut Children's for inviting me and asking me to, to present to you. I'm going to uh, uh, give an update on what we see as the sort of status of COVID-19 vaccination for kids and what some of the ongoing challenges are. And I think you'll, you've already um, heard uh, uh, some of the issues and these will just augment that. So next slide, please. So what I'll cover, um, I'm gonna just give you an update on FDA authorization and approval status for kids, key issues that uh, we think are important to look at, the current vaccine rates, and I'm going to do a focused discussion on parents' views because that's a really important um, aspect of this. And then what to watch for on the horizon before we get to some Q&A. Next. So just to, so you have the sort of lay of the land here, this is by the age group for those under 18. This is what's authorized or approved. And you kind of need a chart to have all the details. And that's one of the challenges I think Dr. Schreiber was mentioning. There's, there's you know, you have to keep track of all of these specifics. Uh, essentially, there is a vaccine uh, authorized or approved for um, uh, kids under 18 down to age five. Um, it's under emergency use authorization for those between the ages of five and 15, and it's been fully approved for those 16 and 17. Um, and this has implications on the policy side that I'll get to. As you can see, the some things just to point out here, the dosing is different between the age groups for, for the younger kids. Um, and there are boosters recommended for kids 12 and older, but not yet for the 5 to 11s. I will say that it's not on this chart for, um, for 5 to 11s and any age group where there's a, the vaccine has been authorized or approved, there's a third dose that is recommended for those who are immunocompromised. Next slide. So you might wanna know what's going on with kids under five. Uh, we don't have a vaccine authorized for that age group yet. And that's, we know a cause for concern and questions from a lot of people, particularly parents. Um, just to give you an update on that, uh, Pfizer has been, and I should have mentioned on the prior slide, all, the only uh, vaccine that is authorized or approved for kids under 18 is the Pfizer vaccine. There was a question I already saw about that. There's no alternative in the United States um, for another kind of vaccine for, uh, for kids under um, age 18 at this point. So Pfizer does have an ongoing clinical trial for kids as young as six months old. 
Initially, uh, they were evaluating a two-dose, three-week-apart regimen, similar to all the others that they've been using, and a smaller dosing. So one of the things that the, um, uh, the clinical trial uh, sponsors are always trying to do, particularly with kids, is calibrate the right dosing to take into account of efficacy and safety. And so they were, they've been looking at lower and lower dosing. Um, that's why the 5 to 11s have a lower dosing. What we found out uh, back in December is that Pfizer came out with some preliminary data showing that they had seen efficacy of this regimen for the youngest uh, cohort in their study, but not for the two to five-year-olds. Um, there were no safety concerns at all, but it was really around the efficacy and announced that in, instead of, uh, you know, what they would do is alter the study and evaluate three doses at the same lower dosing, uh, at least the third one, at least two months after that two-dose regimen. So that essentially means it was going to take longer. Um, some saw that as quite disappointing, but I think it, you know, it's really how clinical trials are supposed to work. Where it got tricky is that back uh, last, last month, the FDA all of a sudden announced that they were going to hold a committee hearing to review an EUA, emergency use authorization application from Pfizer, and that they would decide on February 15th, which is pretty much a signal that the FDA felt it was ready to authorize. And then just uh, less than two weeks after that, we also heard back from the FDA saying, oops, we're postponing that advisory committee meeting. We need more data. Um, essentially what they, they, they jumped the gun a little bit. I think the FDA and the, the US government were, were anxious to speed the process along. Um, again, there were no safety issues, but because of Omicron, uh, wanting to get this authorized as quickly as possible, but realizing I'm sure they saw data that none of, none of us have seen yet, that they still weren't seeing the efficacy that they wanted to see and they need to wait longer to evaluate the impact of the third dose. The current timeline is um, unknown, but I, from everything I've heard, it, it could be April or May that we might um, actually get this information. Okay, next slide. So we've been looking at this issue for a long time, and I'm just gonna highlight uh, a bunch of the issues that we see are, are out there that are, are um, important factors for either facilitating or impeding vaccination rates among kids. So the first is access and equity. That's been a theme throughout COVID-19. And, and frankly, for anyone working in health care, we know that that's a big issue writ large. But for this, for the for kids especially, um, there are some other access issues and, and equity issues that are just important to be aware of. Compared to the population of adults, uh, kids are more likely to be um, uh, 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 kids of color as opposed to white. There's half, about half are um, children of color and half or a little less than half are, are white. And that's different than the population overall of adults. There's also a, a higher reliance on the Medicaid program. Um, they're more likely to be living in families uh, below poverty. So there's a lot of issues uh, around access and equity just from the outset that we know are, are important to consider. Obviously, unlike for adults, the role of pediatricians here is extremely important, but complicated. And one of the things um, that may come up in discussion, you know, we've heard this from, so first of all, parents trust pediatricians. I'm a parent, I have a seven-year-old, of course I trust my pediatrician. Pediatricians though, aren't always able to be the best, um, in the best position to, to deliver this kind of vaccine. Why? Well, the vaccine um, requires certain kinds of storage. The vaccine, um, once you open a vial has to be, uh, administered within 12 hours or it expires. Pediatricians such as mine 
um, you know, have, I don't know how many patients she sees a day, but once you open a vial of the Pfizer uh, uh, vaccine for, um, for kids, you have 10 doses in that vial. That means you have to vaccinate 10 kids within that, that 12 hour period, or those go bad. Um, that's not great for a lot of pediatricians unless they're in a big practice. So that's just something to consider. It also takes a lot more time for the pediatrician, um, the average pediatrician to spend with parents who, who have a lot of questions and may need a lot more handholding than you know, your regular immunization. So there's a lot of issues there. Pharmacists, um, I don't know exactly what the Connecticut laws were before uh, COVID, but in general, prior to COVID, in many states, pharmacists were not uh, author, uh, able to, to vaccinate kids below a certain age. Some places it was 18 and over, some were 16 and over, and some had, have, had all kinds of criteria for allowing pharmacists to vaccinate younger um, people. Uh, because of COVID, the federal government actually gave um, uh, immunity to pharmacists to vaccinate, not just for COVID, but for, for mutine vac uh, immunizations down to age three. So, vac so pharmacists become an important um, uh, potential vaccinator. Uh, but notice that I said down to age three, that's not gonna be the case when a vaccine is authorized for those younger than three. Um, the role of schools. Schools, uh, you know, unfortunately have become very politicized in this pandemic as is everything, but schools have become an important um, source of vaccination for kids or vaccination information for kids. Um, and in, in some places have been a main vaccination site. I know where I live in Washington, DC, the city uh, mobilized schools to be uh, vaccine clinics. And uh, the school that my son goes to, just to give you a, a success story, has, has achieved a vaccination rate of our uh, eligible five to uh, 11s, actually five to 10 year olds of over 80%. So it can be done. Um, and then of course there's other vaccine providers, children's hospitals, vaccine clinics. So there's a lot of potential access points, but also issues for each. Uh, next, just click through. Obviously safety and efficacy are huge issues for anybody, especially parents. As I mentioned, all the data are very strong on safety and efficacy. Um, I, I do believe that we're gonna see um, that the Pfizer vaccine has high efficacy for children under five when the dosing or the amount of, uh, well, not the dosing is not gonna be changed, but the number of doses will be changed. And I think that we'll, we'll see the, the impact. Um, I wanted to just mention this issue of different dosing and formulations because the other challenge that has come up um, when uh, prior to the authorization of the Pfizer vaccine for anyone under 16, um, when there was a new group that was added in, you know, it's time to get uh, adults vaccinated. It's time to get people in this, this group vaccinated. It just meant that the vaccinator, whether it was a hospital, a pharmacist, your doctor, just had to take the same vial from wherever they had it and vaccinate the next person. That's not so once we got to kids uh, under the age of 12 it was a different dosing and the federal government had to actually send out a different vial. And that is going to be the case again for those under five. So it just means that, um, you know, you can't just turn on, the, on a dime. You have to wait for new supplies. Those new supplies have to be treated differently. Some have to be diluted, some aren't. And that just has implications for the average provider or vaccinator. Um, trusted messengers uh, with everything um, throughout the pandemic, we know how important that is. And the trusted messengers um, for, for uh, helping parents, especially parents and caregivers feel comfortable around vaccinating their kids are gonna be different than they are for adults. Um, and, it, and it's really parents that are a key audience here. And it just brings me back to this last point that the views of parents, the concerns of parents 
are a big um, either facilitator or limiting factor to increasing vaccination rates among kids. Next slide. So how are we doing nationally on vaccinating kids? Um, this just shows you, uh, uh, sorry, the age groups didn't come up, but the 33% is fully vaccinated kids five to 11. So just a third of kids um, five to 11 um, have been uh, vaccinated. Um, and then here, the next age group is the 12 to 15s, uh, about, uh, low, about two thirds. And the highest, as you might expect, is going to be the 16 and 17 year olds. They've had a, a vaccine available to them since day one. When Pfizer's vaccine was authorized in December of 2020, uh, it was authorized for those 16 and older. So their rates are pretty close to the, to the national rate. Um, but you can see with the young age group that's just been authorized since November, it's still quite low. Next slide. And what we see, this is five to 11 year olds, but I wanted to just show this for, to say that this exists as an issue for across all groups. As you can see, the five to 11 um, uh, age group was authorized uh, uh, back in November. And very quickly, the uh, rate of, in, of vaccination, it shot right up, you know, as parents ran out to get their kids vaccinated, and then it went down very quickly and it has stayed quite low since. So this is new doses being administered every day. And you can see they're not going up and they're quite low. And this is a challenge across the board for pretty much all age groups. Next slide. I just wanted to give out a shout out to Connecticut. Again, the ages aren't here, but Connecticut is doing, and so is Massachusetts, um, doing better than the national average, at least for young kids. And I think that's a good sign. In fact, throughout New England, New England has been doing a great job uh, across the board on the vaccination effort and for the youngest cohort as well. Next slide. So at, uh, where I work at KFF, we've been doing regular polling of the public. And so we have a, a, a tracking uh, poll that goes on to try to understand where different, what different views are. And I can just say, I'm not gonna show these slides, some of these slides today, but there's an incredible partisan difference on lots of aspects of COVID, probably not a surprise here. Um, but this, these are some data uh, that we have on parents. And this, and I'm gonna break it out into age groups. This is for 12 to 17 year olds. Um, this mirrors what you see in the data. Uh, the majority of parents of 12 to 17 year olds say their kid is, is now vaccinated. Three in 10 will still say they won't get their kid vaccinated. That's an ongoing challenge. Next slide. The next slide is for five to 11 year olds. And you see this drops considerably. Um, about a third uh, say their child has gotten vaccinated, but more than a third say definitely not. And you know the, the share saying their kid has gotten vaccinated or that they're a little more open to it does um, is getting increased over time, but there's still a stubborn significant uh, share that just says, I will not get my kid vaccinated ever or only if required. Next slide. And what about parents for those under five where there's no vaccine yet authorized? They're, they're fairly cautious. 21% um, in our most recent uh, survey that just came out a, a week or two ago said they're gonna get their kid vaccinated right away. 26% say wait and see, and most are just not there. Um, that might be understandable. The data are hard to understand. The FDA came out and said, we're on the verge of authorizing and then said, no, we're not. And we know that those kinds of public, um, uh, how, how the policy process plays out in public creates challenges um, and, and information. Next slide. We also know that um, parents uh, are, are 
especially younger parents feel like they don't necessarily have all the information they want. This is asking parents, do you have enough information on safety and effectiveness and look by age group? Well, for, for teens, yeah, they feel like they have enough information, even now for five to 11 year olds, but for under five, they don't. And that's, you know, I'm not surprised by that finding. Next slide. Uh, are parents confident in safety of the vaccines? And this is interesting because the safety has really not been an issue. Um, the safety profile of these vaccines is very, very good. Um, you can see though that uh, uh, parents still are, are concerned and as all parents are always concerned about the safety for anything that they're going to have to uh, give to their kids, but they're really uh, quite concerned for those who are younger. And, um, and I think that's gonna have implications for getting that younger cohort vaccinated. Next slide. Um, we also asked, because uh, this is a, an issue, a policy issue that's going to keep coming up. This is not just of parents, but this is all adults. Do we think that schools should require COVID-19 vaccines? And this is just showing you who, who is most supportive and who's least supportive. And you can see this breaks down um, on, across partisan lines. Um, and, uh, and, and then looking just at parents, um, there's, you know, not the majority are not supportive of requiring COVID-19 vaccines in, by schools. And I'll, we can talk about this in the discussion, but I think this is going to be an interesting issue to watch. Next slide. This is, I'm wrapping up here so we can get to questions. Um, things to watch for, uh, as, we, as I've already been talking about, uh, FDA emergency use authorization for kids under five. It is expected. Uh, I'm not, uh, I don't think there's any concern that it won't happen. It's just when, will it be April, will it be May? Um, and, and that matters because there's, it's going to take a, a, you know, a, a significant amount of weeks to get a kid fully protected. Um, this evaluation of the third, of the third dose, um, it's not just the third dose for the under fives, but Pfizer is now looking at a third dose for five to 11 year olds. As you saw the data earlier, um, the waning effectiveness for this age group um, is probably related to the dosing. Um, the other issue is will FDA fully approve the vaccine for the younger younger um, kids. Uh, right now it's authorized, as I mentioned, uh, uh, for those under 16. Um, if there's full approval, that tends to change some um, uh, opinions and, and parental reluctance will probably go down. Will there be school requirements? Will COVID-19 vaccination become routine? And then of course, I hate to end with this, but what happens if COVID-19 surprises us again? We can't rule out the fact that there might be um, another variant or some other uh, issue um, wave that we have to contend with. And that's where vaccination becomes incredibly important. So I'll end there. I, I wanted to make sure we had time for questions. Again, I really appreciate the opportunity to, to be here. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Dr. Cates. Really very, very interesting information. Very useful, I believe. And, and so let's go to the questions. We have a number of them. Um, and this, uh, John, this is a follow-up to your presentation. Uh, what is the status of additional vaccines available to those under 18 who cannot receive the mRNA vaccines? And uh, you mentioned Novavax, and they're asking about Glaxo or Sanofi. Yeah, I mean, and Dr. Cates actually can answer this as well. We don't have anything right now. I mean, Novavax, I think, is going to be in front of the FDA in the next few weeks, and it's going to provide that opportunity. Um, but I don't think we have anything right now. Uh, Jennifer, do you, do you know that's that's correct. Um, I know that uh, you know the China has has authorized vaccine for kids down to three, but it's and it's not an mRNA vaccine, but it's also the least effective vaccine that's out there, and it's not one that would ever be really used in the United States. So there's no option right now for for kids under under uh, eighteen. 
Yeah, so you just and remember the, the Novavax, unfortunately, the data they're presented to the FDA is 18 and above. Yeah. So it's probably not going to solve the problem in the short run. Right. They are. They do have a trial for the 12 to 17 year olds. Yeah. All right. Uh, to, uh, this will be to both of you. John, we'll begin with you. If this, you showed a seasonality of the disease. So uh, comment on your uh, what do you think about yearly booster doses? Will they become standard? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I got, I got on a limb. I'll say yes. I mean, I think we have very good data that immunity wanes. We know this is morphing into a seasonal respiratory virus. Um, and uh, I think it's going to make sense knowing that immunity wanes, that we get annual boosters. And it might move to the influenza model where we survey the world for the various variants and using mRNA technology or other technology, you're able to fairly quickly create a booster dose that's appropriate to the variants circulating. So. I'm going to say yes. I, I Again, I will say I'm not complaining, but I would say it would be helpful for the United States to be a little more proactive moving forward because, you know, we have thousands of healthcare providers and others who are asking this exact same question, mm -hmm. of, you know, when and how is it this fall? And I think if we could just say we're going to get boosted this fall and we're not sure which booster it is, that would be helpful. But we haven't even said that yet. So I don't know, Dr. Cates. I know. I totally agree. I think for healthcare workers and for older folks, uh, I'm getting those questions a lot. And I think it's it's safe to assume that boosters are needed for, for anyone who's particularly on the, on the front lines or has weakened immunity. And it would just be helpful to note to have that just cleared up. I agree. Thanks. Uh, Dr. Cates, this is not on the, uh, on the, on, on the Q&A, but it's a comment for, and let's see, just getting your opinion. One of the one of the biggest concerns I've had with the anti-vaccine movement um, and the data you just showed from parents, mm -hmm. uh, especially for the younger age and the, the hesitancy in these vaccines, is what is what are you hearing, at, or what have you what what do you think will happen with with other vaccines, other pediatric vaccines? I'm very concerned that this will sort of lead to greater refusal of using the typical childhood vaccines. Yeah, I, I completely share that concern. I think it's a really serious and, and real issue that, um, you know, that prior to COVID, there were people that were, you know, there was an anti-vax movement in the United States, and it was isolated in certain areas. Um, and it was, you know, it wasn't partisan in the same way. It was really a, 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 an interesting but different kind of thing. And um, so that was one. And then also prior to COVID, uh, every state mandated a set of routine vaccinations in schools. Um, I'm concerned, and I think a lot of us working in the space are concerned that now um, that a vaccination has become so politicized that there's gonna be many more uh, parents and caregivers questioning routine vaccination. And there's already some, I, I don't know if these will succeed, but there's even some challenges in certain states to uh, mandating routine vaccination in schools. If those were to go away, we would be in a very, very serious uh, bad state. Uh, pub they would, public health would suffer uh, significantly. So it is a key issue that um, has to be watched. Um, and I think we'll learn more uh, of what's gonna happen as legislatures around the country um, take up some of those bills in the next few months. And then we'll also see when the vaccine has full approval, which it will from the FDA for school age kids, um, which states are going to move to add that to the list of mandated vaccinations and what kinds of challenges that will, will but I, I share your concern there. 
Yeah, uh, question from uh, Rachel Rothschild. That how should we advise parents about when to have their kids go to school without a mask, especially for kids less than five who are not, who are, who are not high risk? Is it safe for them to remove the mask in school, John? Well, you know, I, I think the masks are going to be made optional, just where it's going to go. And I think common sense is going to need to dictate that if your child is high risk, post-cancer, or has an immunodeficiency, they need to wear a mask and they need not to be stigmatized for it. Very important message we need to give out to our public health, to our public school and other school officials. I think if there's an immunocompromised or they live with a 90-year-old grandparent, that's another issue and perhaps they need to wear a mask. So each family is going to make that decision and I would base it on common sense of who's at risk in that family, in the immediate family. If nobody's at risk and everybody's healthy and they're all immunized, it's low risk. You saw the data, the likelihood of being hospitalized and being injured is very low. Don't wear a mask and, and move ahead. We're moving to an endemic phase. We're gonna to have to learn how to live with this. But if they're high risk people, the data are really clear. They could have a breakthrough infection and get very sick. Personally, I'd ask my kid to continue to wear a mask and that's gonna get challenging when 90% of the kids aren't. And I would echo that. Uh, if I had a, a kid um, who wasn't eligible for vaccination yet and the school lifted the mandate, I would be more comfortable having my child stay masked. But I, what, what this raises is this is where public policy is so important. It, putting the onus on the individual family to make these decisions is, is stressful to families. And I think it's that's what we're gonna see play out. Thank you. A uh, question from uh, one of our pediatricians. Uh, as we move into allergy season and as kids are increasingly unmasked, we will see a resurgence of respiratory illness. Can you comment on the safety of office-based nebulizer treatments and spirometry uh, testing going forward as asthma makes a resurgence? You know, I'll, I'll dive in on that. Actually, I have a terrible cold right now and it's COVID negative, PCR negative, and I haven't been sick in two years. And so we're moving to a more normal place. You're absolutely right. They're gonna be respiratory stuff as all of us sort of move out into society again. I think it depends on the community spread in your area. If it's really low community spread, we're going to be moving to manage our patients in an ambulatory fashion more normally. Now, I do believe from now on, though, we should be wearing a mask and eye protection for any procedure that you're doing in the clinic. So I don't, I think that's just where we need to move. So if you're going to do NABs, fine, but wear a mask and wear eye protection when you do it and use low community spread, it'll be low risk to you. If you have high community spread, get that N95 on and wear eye protection. You're gonna to need to go back to that. So it's gonna depend on where things move in my opinion. Thank you. From uh, Dr. Kroll, one other policy issue in Connecticut that may also impact delivery of vaccines, including COVID, is that Connecticut does not allow mass, uh, MAs to give vaccination. Such an expansion of vaccination in pediatric offices would make a difference. Uh, there is a bill to be discussed in public health committee on Monday that would allow that. Um, so it's, it's more of a comment, but obviously it, it, Dr. Cates and in, in across the nation, what, what have you seen regarding MAs giving vaccines? That's a good question. Um, that is also variable. I don't have the data on, on where, how many places permit it, but I think it's, you know, the, some of these questions have, were sort of in the background pre-COVID. Uh, there were, you know, pre-COVID, um, the issue of pharmacists being able to do routine vaccine immunizations was one that a few paid attention to. But these, I think what we're, the crisis that we've been in is showing that we really need to approach public health and healthcare delivery in a different way. And so hopefully these, these are all positive developments, I think, if these kinds of expansions can happen. Um, um, so I, I think that's a great, a great addition to the, so the policy questions here. It's not just in the pharmacy, but in the doctor's office, who else can do vaccination? 
So, so a follow-up to that, and uh, there is a bill that uh, that will be discussed next week here in Connecticut that expands the ability of, of pharmacies to give uh, yearly influenza vaccine to kids. Until now, that, ha that was not available. Um, and, and so there's a question about whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Of course, pediatrician offices are concerned that, you know, that will take away some of their ability to monitor uh, and frankly, Bill, for, for those vaccines. And, and so there, there's the yin and the yang on this. And love to hear your, both of your opinions on that, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. I think it's the reality where I need to move forward. But pediatricians are concerned. Um, I'm happy to take that, start with that. Um, yeah, so, so prior to COVID, uh, that the, it was very limited access for, to get an, a routine immunization for flu or anything in, at a pharmacy for, younger, for young kids. Um, and uh, and you know, I, I'll just speak from personal experience. Um, as someone who has a regular, you know, pediatrician for my kid, I found that to be a barrier because uh, it was much easier for me to take my kid down the block to Walgreens or CVS to get him his flu shot than to make an appointment during work hours at my pediatrician's. Um, on the other hand, when when I do know that pediatricians as a group were, were not happy with, with those kinds of uh, loosening of, of those restrictions because of billing and all the things you said. During the COVID emergency and actually under the Trump administration, the federal government moved to allow for pharmacists in all states to do routine immunizations for kids down to age three to preempt state laws. So if a Connecticut had a state law preempting that, it was waived during the public health emergency. Um, and I think this is, a, this is another policy issue as the public health emergency is ending um, states, many states are going to have to make a proactive decision such as Connecticut about whether they want to continue that practice. I think that, you know, it is a yin and a yang. Um, pediatricians uh, do have billing concerns and also concerns about maintaining that relationship with their, with their, their patients. Um, on the other hand, uh, we know that how access is such a, a critical issue and flu vaccination rates have never been great in the United States. So, increasing um, access to flu vaccination. Um, and I think, I think the whole mindset around where you get your, vac your vaccines has really shifted, not just because of COVID, but frankly, because of the ACA. Prior to the ACA, people had to you know, pay for their vaccinations. And now for recommended vaccinations, you don't. And so you can just pop into your pharmacist and get it. And I think that's just the, the new reality. Thank you. Uh, from one of our pediatricians for vaccination and pregnancy and the associated protection for the fetus, does timing of the vaccine and the pregnancy matter, John? Well, remember, it's two doses, and then there's a lag before you produce optimal antibodies. So you probably don't want to give it third trimester. You're not going to have any benefits. So yeah, earlier is better. Two doses, and it takes a few weeks to optimize the antibody production and to cross the placenta. So uh, earlier is better. Third trimester, probably not useful. Uh, last question we have here is, what should we recommend regarding timing of first or second booster vaccine for patients who have recently had COVID? I think you've addressed this before, John. And yeah, you know, I, I'll give you my opinion on that. And I, I think the more I learn, I, I recognize there are two things in my head about that. One is COVID is a serious virus and we, it has very unpredictable effects. And, and um, some of its components are toxic to human tissues. So I probably would not want to reintroduce spike protein right after you've just been insulted with spike protein, mm -hmm. the native virus, you know, a week later. Personally, I'd rather wait a few weeks. And then um, the data are really clear. If you have natural infection and you're boosted, you have a terrific antibody response. So I personally suggest you wait a month and then immunize, but that's my opinion. Uh, also, if you think immunologically, 
Um, it's better when you're, you've initially been challenged with an antigen to wait a little while before you re-challenge because you can actually get a tolerance issue if you give it too close after uh, too close to each other. So those two reasons, immunologically and toxicity, I tend to wait about a month after natural infection to boost, but it's very important to get that shot because your antibody titers will wane very quickly with natural infection and boosting with vaccine shows you get terrific titers if you've had natural infection. Great. Uh, thank you. And I think that was our, our last question. We had uh, over 100 people join us this morning. So again, thank you, Dr. Cates, for taking time out of your busy day to join us. It was a great presentation. And Dr. Shriver, despite your um, adenovirus or whatever you have that is not COVID, I'm glad you were able to join us. And I'm, I'm definitely not getting infected today because I don't think we have been, we have not gotten infected through Zoom yet, as far as I know. But, you know, I guess that could happen at some point. Uh, everyone, thank you for joining us. The next uh, Ask the Experts will be April 1st. Uh, so there's a, about a month lag. and uh, But you can certainly clamor and get John back here before that if you want. So just, you know, send us send us your email. Uh, take care, everyone. Be safe, and uh, we will see you again next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.